0: Sarah Heffler. Good morning, Nancy Romney. So I come to you not from the red table, but from the red, from the red room. Yeah. Uh, red room. I am in a very red room in um, a hotel room in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and I have to tell you, not only is it in this early morning light, the red room, it sort of looks like a murder room, but the hotel itself. So my daughter and I got here, we're like, are we in The Shining? It's just a little... It's a little creepy, but it's fine. <laughs> just a quick stop. We didn't get here till like 10 o'clock last night, and we're taking off this morning. So,
1: Do people in St. Louis call it Missouri or Missouri? I,
0: I really don't know because we haven't really seen anyone in Missouri, oh, okay. except for like someone that served me like a glass of wine and a po'boy last night at a place called the Broadway Fish Bar, I think. Uh, met an old friend of mine from college and just pulled in here and uh, what did I do? The first thing I did, because someone told me I needed to, was we watched the, uh, we watched the last episode of The Deep End.
1: That was a hell of a finale.
0: So I'm wondering if we should talk about, if we should talk about that first, if we should talk about Sonmez, which I don't know. I just feel like we, I mean, they're both, what, what do we say here? But these women are just giving us a, a panoply of, of things to talk about here. So what do you think?
1: Let's start with the deep end.
0: So I will tell you first. So we're driving. My daughter and I are driving from Tulsa to New York City, and um, I told her I had to watch this. She hadn't seen. She hadn't seen any of the deep end. She's been busy working. Um, but we she, we listened to one of our episodes, which I I really rarely ever do, and she she got a little backstory on Teal Swan, and then we watched it last night together in the hotel room bed, and she said to me, "Mom, she's she's." She's worse than I even thought. She's like the worst person ever. I'm like, I told you it's a, it's a, why don't you, why don't you recap it for us, Sarah? I think you were, you had some good things.
1: To well, about the first thing I want to say about this finale, I have a lot of thoughts on this finale. You know, this is, there were four episodes in this series. I could have watched, I think like at least a dozen. So it sort of came to an abrupt end. The first thing I want to say about this finale is that cinematically, it's arresting. This is really beautifully shot. It looks like a movie. It reminded me of Terrence Malick.
0: You know, I have some really, I don't know if they're interesting thoughts, but definitely thoughts on this. I mean, yes, first of all, the, the, Angles and when they capture things and the close-ups are are unbelievable to the point where I actually said to myself, "Is this a movie? Like, how were they able to get this amount of intimacy that that really implies? You and I write about people in different difficult situations, and the level of trust we are afforded is." phenomenal I am not there with a camera like almost I there was a scene where she's running uh you know she's running taking a jog and the sort of way that the camera would like slow and then stop and like it was very choreographed there was no way this is off the cuff and I'll let you get back to it but one other thing I want to say that occurred to me and I wonder if you agree is that they did not have a lot of footage to work with in this last episode. The artfulness in a good way, like bringing in previous shots and these sort of atmospheric moments, it was almost as though they didn't have like a solid 40 minutes of, to, to round out to finish up the episode, essentially. I, I don't know if they, they plan to make it only four episodes. I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. You've said that a couple of times. I have no idea. I, I, I want to say, I mean, this, this footage was filmed over three years. So if there is a deficit of material, um, it would only be towards this unraveling at the end. I, I, you know, it, there is actually a surfeit of material and we, it's been carefully chosen. And I think the cinematography and the, and the, this sort of fast cuts of this last episode in some ways do make you wonder like they they really foreground the construction of this story for me um that this sure. is not any kind of cinema verite this is this is very much like an artful this is a piece of art um we have not mentioned that the filmmaker is a man named john casby he's a young guy Um, he has not made a lot of movies, which I find impressive. You know, he made a documentary called When Lambs Become Lions, which was about poachers in the Kenyan bush. Um, and I just wanted to mention that because I I think his story here is the one that's untold. I would love to hear him speak more about this. I don't know if he ever will. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Teal Swan sues him over this. Yes, for sure. Uh, sure. Story. This last episode concerns the culmination of a love triangle that has been existing in the uh, in Teal Swan's orbit, which is her longtime friend and former lover and sort of partner in this business. Blake has married a woman named Juliana. Uh, one of the things that happens early on is that Teal confronts Juliana in a circle, like the group of them are all sitting around. And I found this scene fascinating because what happens is that Teal says to Juliana, I consider you an adversary. You know, there's something about you, there's some energy in you that I just don't... I don't like, explain yourself. And Juliana kind of says, well, I don't know. the,
0: The first thing she says is, what is this word? She's German.
1: Oh, she says, what is this word? Because she's
0: German. And yeah. She, someone says enemy. You know, it's interesting that you use the phrase love triangle because, you know, she's, I think she was with Blake, Till Swan was with Blake something close to 18 years, something like well, that.
1: Well, they dated and, briefly, but they what, were, they've been friends for 18 years.
0: Right. But what I, I guess I wanted to say was it's like the triangle is really not between Blake and Teal Swan and Juliana, though, of course, Juliana is the new person in here. And I guess she was part of the unit there for about a year. But it's between um, Teal Swan, Blake, and anything else that could possibly get in the way of Teal Swan being uh, being Blake's everything. You know, whether it was like, I mean, can you imagine like if he got sick? Let's say Blake had gotten a cancer. You know who would be the, her enemy? The cancer because she, not because it would be hurting Blake i she doesn't care at all she she could care less whatever happens to anything but she is um she has set up she sets juliana up as an adversary even before juliana gets there because she can't have anything intrude on her being everyone's north star
1: and this question of whether or not people are allowed to be close to people outside the inner circle is one of the hinges on which the diagnosis of cult swings here. So in in one brief scene, she meets with a woman that's been investigating this, and the woman says, you know, this might be a cult. And one of the ways she's decided that is that people are not allowed to stay close to anyone that threatens the inner circle. And, and this is very uh, upsetting to Teal, who immediately... You know, when she closes down her laptop, sort of turns to the guys next to her and is like, how could this happen? She's, she's, it's, you know, I mean,
0: it's she's so it's it's so bald. And again, you know, we know how the we know how filmmakers can cut things, but there's no I mean, just, first, there's no way to fake
1: this. I no, mean, there's, no, to, there's no good there's no context that makes this make sense.
0: And the things that, I mean, they're reading the list of forbidden things or whatever that list is called, the Teal Swans people have created, and the woman's reading it back to her, and Teal Swans is like, oh, no, no, I didn't say that. Now, these are not only are these things, all the things that she said, this came from her, but later on in the episode, she doubles down on everything. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to just interject one thing, and, and my daughter agreed, my daughter came to this completely new last night. And then we watched, um, she clicked on like a Teal Swan video just to see. She literally said to me, is this real? Teal Swan, if you just listen, and I'm not talking about what the filmmaker showed. I'm talking about like that other video you sent last Mm -hmm. night or what my daughter said. She is not smart. It's all word salad. They're literally, Mm -hmm. if you sit and try to listen to one idea in a linear way, there is no way it makes sense. Any sense. It's it's taking again, this is a person that takes vulnerable people and she she feeds them a bunch of little starry words and a bunch of little concepts that are designed to both bedazzle them and make them dependent on her. And this is this is exactly what we saw in action last night, correct correct?
1: Nancy, have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt in pain?
0: Oh, wait, have you ever, she's she's talking to a room of like 3,000 people, right? And this is, it's amazing. It's amazing how much people want to make the leader like them, make them not look like the odd man out. So she says, has anybody here ever felt alone? Have you felt in pain? And you look at the audience and I don't know, like a third of people's hands go up. And then a beat later another third, and by that third beat baby doll, every hand except that I could, I'm looking for the person that didn't raise his hand. There's like one dude like, oh, I don't know. Okay, I feel okay.
1: He's like, my girlfriend dragged me. <laughs>
0: exactly. He's like, I got a good life. <laughs> I don't do anything to not go to therapy. But uh, anyway, um, it's, and they all, I mean, we also saw that in the circle, you know, she gathers, till Swan gathers around. It's just Blake. It's Julianne. It's this other couple and this other gal. And it's like, okay, we're all going to talk about the ways that Juliana is being mean to me, essentially. Okay, this was was, my, like this blew my
1: mind because what Teal Swan decides when Juliana kind of gives her a answer on whether or not she's her adversary is she decides to go around the circle and everyone in the group says what they think Juliana thinks about Teal. And this is an amazing moment because what they're actually doing, I believe, now this is my interpretation, is they're using Juliana as a puppet for their own of course. thoughts about Teal Swan. Absolutely. So you hear somebody say, you know, she thinks you're a megalomaniac. She thinks you're... Controlling people.
0: She thinks you're a narcissist. She, she thinks, thinks you're a narcissist. She hates yeah. you. She hates you. And you're. I said the exact same thing to Tava. I was like, these are what they think. This is what totally they think, <laughs> but they are using. It's like, oh, finally, I can say something, but it's not me. And oh, God bless Blake because I was sitting there, and he's so freaking. It's so terrible. He's just crumbling, and he then he gets up and he sits next to her. Sits next to meaning. He goes from sitting next to uh, to Teals to sitting next to Juliana. And I'm there's like, a
1: lot of great boy, moments that are mined boy. in silence in this episode. Oh, crazy! Blake. Phrasing. Blake's silence speaks volumes in the first mm-hmm. half of this he just doesn't say anything he's caught between worlds between women between loyalties but there is a moment where he silently gets up at the circle and takes a seat next to his wife and nobody says anything and it's so i literally powerful. said i literally
0: said good boy out loud <laughs> i was like good boy and then um you know it's interesting because anybody who's manipulative and i think we've all I had a very, I had a very, the guy we talked about once, many, many episodes, the one that kicked me in the eyes when I was 16, 15, 16. Um, He was deeply sick, um, but also like deeply sort of manipulative, sort of like this, Mm -hmm. like nice one moment, bad the other. And you can see in that uh, when they're in the kitchen when Blake has decided to leave, he's packing and um, you can see Teal, you know, you know how many different ways she's stroked him and manipulated him in the past but now her card that she's going to play is not the sweet nice look at me mm-hmm. i love you this she's going to play the absolute i mean she said things to him that i've never said to anyone in my life ever or nor would i it, it the cruelty is incredible and he just sort of he just the fact that he doesn't break that weren't you afraid
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a really tense scene, but I think what you see in that moment is 18 years of knowing how to handle this woman. Because what does he do? He reaches out and he touches her tenderly. And even though she's being an ice queen, he takes her into a hug. And what happened when he hugged her? She didn't do anything and then she closed her eyes.
0: Do you think she was accepting it? Sorry, what, what happened to her, Sarah?
1: No, I think that's right. I mean, I think we're, we can only interpret, but I think there's a question as to whether or not she was doing that for the camera, doing that. What I really felt like she was allowing herself one to be moment. close to him one last one. time.
0: I, I Yes. And, and whether that was, you know, sort of manufactured for the camera or not, but I thought the same thing. Like she stayed... Totally icy, and then it was just like one moment. You knew how angry she would, she would be, and uh, two other things that I, I loved at the end, like that other guy was on stage introducing her. I was like, oh, I, I knew she, I knew he'd be replaced. Blake would be replaced as mm-hmm. I don't know in her heart what sort of heart she has, but something that I thought was so lovely. And again, it's you know the way they cut the thing is. Um, when they were eating soup in Germany, like soup as a representation of love and warmth, mm. you know, it was so beautiful. Well, of course, you know, actually, this is something I read a long time ago. And it's actually true. Sorry. Everything's a cooking analogy for me. Yeah. Um, soup for hungry people, full meals for less hungry people. If you see someone that's been in the snow or somebody that's starving, give them soup. I'm I'm not sure, like the calories I get, get in there more quickly or something. Anyway.
1: um, So the most intense and gripping scene to me was in some ways the most mundane, which was the fish. (gasps) Oh my, okay, so now you are, my my daughter
0: was like, oh mom, the fish, the fish, yeah, well, pretty symbolic, huh?
1: So we didn't know that he had a fish tank, maybe there, I think there might have been uh, at, the earlier, at the very beginning, I think the very was. beginning. Yeah. Um. But uh, I'd forgotten, and they, you know, Blake and Juliana leave. They set up the fish tank, and in their new apartment, we have no idea how far away this is. But uh, as he goes to place these beautiful fish in the tank, they they seem to be very sick.
0: They're or dead
1: or dead. What did you think in that moment?
0: Well, obviously sort of representational of like going from one life to the next, but now just thinking about it. So there were two fish. One was quite, it was like one of these goldfish was like the big fluffy tail, quite, you know, the queen fish, lovely. Right. And the other, the other is this like small little white fish, you know, who's like not like, And they're both. They both seem to be dead, though. I think he was just burying the
1: one at the end, the little white it's fish. the,
0: the little the, symbolic. The
1: queen fish, the queen goldfish with her you beautiful ruffles survived. Yeah. Oh and the other God. one died. Oh God. And, and God. Did, hey, did you think did you think um Teal Swan had poisoned the fish? Well that never
0: holy moly, no, it didn't occur to me. But what did occur to me when she was running down the road, because at one point she just says, Juliana should be dead. I mean, like, I don't know how much more bald you can get than this, right? I was like, is she going to, like, attack them? Is she going to go and, like, push Juliana down a flight of stairs? You know, that's what I was
1: She said, um, at one point she's reading internet comments, and she says if they knew what really happened here, meaning the whole Blake leaving my fans would want this woman dead it's um it's some strong stuff um the 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 fish scene is followed by blake burying the dead fish which is like a sh- it was so tense it was like shit from good fellas or That's like awesome.
0: The way they did, it, it looked like it was like right on the side of a
1: highway at he night. Seemed and to the be lights, the si- he so seemed to be weird. on the side of the highway because he had uh, car passing car lights yeah. flashing over his face, which was Very incredibly weird. dramatic. And he's finally crying. And you know that he's burying something. And my question for you, Nancy, what is he burying? He's burying 18 years of his life. He's he's putting it to bed,
0: and it was interesting because I I don't know why I was thinking this. I was thinking you know the the fish bones and fish will dissolve so well into the earth. The earth will just absorb it all, and it'll nourish the earth, right? That's what that's what we that's what dead things do. Um, but yeah, it was that was it. And also, they had those close-ups on his face. I mean, Blake is in his late thirties; he looked like he was seventy yeah. in terms of the tension on his face. Um, but I, I I do think. I have no idea, and I and again, it's it's my fault for not looking it up. It, it, there's got to be a deeper story as to why this ended within four episodes. Um, but the fact I'm not I'm actually not going to say we're going to leave it for, for for listeners to look for themselves. I'm not going to say what the doubling down is in the last part. Mm. What, what Teal is making her is requiring. We'll, we'll leave some we'll leave spoilers a, for that. We'll, we'll leave a spoiler. Yeah. But if you if you actually when i said god i could get really emotional here what did i call her at the very beginning i called her a death eater right hmm. so maybe it's the fact that it's not just that she's she's is is sustained somehow on people's misery and if some people's interpretation on their suicides she doesn't even want life she does not want life this woman is she is what is it thanos is that is that what death is? Thanos, right? Mm. Yes? Anybody? Yeah, Eros and
1: Thanos, right? Yeah.
0: Um, I I, I, find, I find that she is still influencing people, if she is, which of course she is, to be terrifying and terribly, terribly sad. Terribly sad. You know, we, we're going to, the next story we're going to get into in a minute. Sometimes, you know, as a journalist, you can't really, you can't ethically have a drum to beat yes, absolutely. You can expose corruption and you can expose things. I once wrote a story about a church in, in scare quotes, um, in Portland that was giving children ayahuasca, which is a hallucinogen. And they were doing it because they felt that, you know, they are, they, they were smart enough to, you know, enlighten their children this way. And I, I think this is criminal and um I, we expose them to their, to, to their unhappiness. But a story like this, you're a filmmaker, like you can't you can't look at it directly and say, "Oh, I'm going to expose Till Swan." That's never going to work. All you because and then that's not really your job. Your job is to like look at it and say, "Okay, people, you've got you've got free will. Oh, I, I believe people do, um, and this is what you're signing up for." And maybe they're going to look at this documentary and think it looks awesome. Maybe they're going to be like, "Yeah, Till Swan, I totally want to never see my family again, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm signing up." Um, I think they did a a good job. Let's see if it has any impact, you know, whatsoever.
1: Um, I just wanted to say that I looked it up and the death drive is Thanatos. Thanatos. And Thanos is apparently a comic book character from the Marvel universe.
0: So, of course, that's the only thing I knew as opposed to the (laughs) actual origin of the world. So if you want to disrespect me more, there you go. (laughs) It's very
1: cute. I was was going along with it. Um, There was one moment in this... Finale that I felt for Teal Swan. I really felt moved. And it was when she spoke about Blake leaving and that 18 years ago, he was the first person she had ever trusted and that all these therapists had told her, trust this person, trust this person, he will never leave you. And she was vulnerable in this moment, by by which I mean she seemed childlike. She seemed childlike and a little bit shaken and stunned. And you can call this person all sorts of names, a narcissist, evil, a cult leader, whatever. Underneath any of these things, she is a human being. And for whatever reason, she has decided to reframe a man that gave 18 years of his life to bringing her vision into the world as a fucking betrayal because he finally left to pursue a life of his own. And that makes me very sad for her. That's a very, very small corner in which to live. That if anybody leaves you, it's a betrayal because everyone will leave you, which means she will always be left betrayed.
0: I think we talked a couple of episodes about how, you know, people shed skins, right? I told you the story about Tim and the, and the, our planets overlapping Mm -hmm. and going into orbits. And, you know, sometimes when people are like, they've had an 18 year marriage, let's say and the marriage breaks up and it's like, I can't believe it. I blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but you had 18 good years. Like that's, is this nothing? Does this like not count? Do you want to stay in one place for the rest of your life? Because you can't. You can't stand in the moving river and not go with it. She, she, she also, I hate to say this because I do believe she seemed that she had real feelings for him and she did rely on him. I mean, that's a long time to build this world together. Um, but also... She, you know, she, she's the person that did it. She, she can't take responsibility for that. And that's too bad. And she moved that other kind of guy with the wacky eyes into Blake's role and, and they'll go on, you know, she'll continue to suck sustenance from her supplicants. And, um, yeah, I, I, I I mean, I guess I can feel bad for her just like we're going to get into Felicia Sonmez in a minute. Um, if, can I jump tracks here
1: now? Well, I want to say a couple more things before we leave Teal. Yeah. Just to underscore what you just said, I mean, there's a, you know, one of the, like, steady protagonists through this was the investigator. She um, was amazing. And we her hear her. Stein of her, Beer at the end when she was drinking that beer stick, Stein of She's, a, she's beer. fantastic. Like, what year is this? She's fantastic. <laughs> she was great. And she's we hear her in voiceover saying that Teal Swan has built a prison of her own making. Mm-hmm. She's Uh buried herself in a prison of her own making. And we see this as Teal Swan is sort of draping her feet in her beautiful pool. And, you know, we get footage of her running and running, Teal Swan, running and running. And over that, we hear Teal's own voice addressing a crowd. And what she says is when we're running away from emotions, we're running away from ourselves. And this strikes me as just the classic mistake of the preacher and the writer and the sermon giver and the self-help maker and all these people that want you to fix your life. It's that they're giving the sermons that they need and they can't take their own advice. And they will try to fix everyone in an attempt to avoid the work of healing themselves, which is the thing that makes the whole thing doomed well that's
0: uh, yes it's just that if she didn't have to metabolize the souls of others it would maybe be a little more kind
1: or is she retrieving the souls of others nancy you decide
0: yeah i think she's i think she's using them as calories i think that this people that have i'm sorry i feel like we're just segueing right into Sonmans. so sure. So, um first, for anybody that that pays attention to this sort of journalistic insider baseball or even are just kind of reading the news, um, we've had a big, big issue for the past week um, over at the Washington post Uh a journalist named Felicia Sonmez, who I have written about before. There's some links here, including to an article of mine called uh, the, the The Shiv in the Hand of Kindness. We'll link to another article by Emily Yaffe um, in Reason a couple of years ago called I'm Radioactive. Sonmez, a number of years, made an accusation against a journalist named Jonathan Kamen, which I found and a lot of other people found to be. Fairly false, and and yet it wound up destroying her life, his life, and I don't know if it really somewhat elevated hers. Someone let me know yesterday that when she was hired by the Washington Post, they she, she, they were really, it wasn't like with big Hosana. Anyway, um, then she's just had problems over there. She's constantly complaining. And she was the one that, you know, tweeted about Kobe Bryant while the helicopter was still on fire with him and his daughter in it that, you know, we should remember him in his totality, meaning because he'd been he'd been accused of rape. She got landed on about that, and then uh, the the Washington Post told her to take down the tweet, and they suspended her for one day. And then the union got behind Sonmez, and it was all about like you're 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 not letting women who are survivors of sexual abuse speak their truth. It was gone on and on and on. She sued the Washington Post. The case got thrown out with malice. She recently, while. While Taylor Lorenz, another Washington Post journalist, was getting a lot of sunshine, not in a good way necessarily, for um, saying in an article that she'd contacted sources when in fact she hadn't, necessitating the Washington Post to write the longest correction in the history of corrections (laughs) repeatedly, and also to do some stealth editing, meaning they edited her piece without telling the readers, Um, Sonmez um, got in there and and basically flagged one of her colleagues, Dave Weigel, uh, for retweeting a joke that she felt was sexist. Um, it's easily, you can easily find the tweet. Uh, I didn't find it particularly sexist. I didn't find it particularly funny, but whatever. Um, Weigel immediately deleted it. He took it down. Um, wasn't enough for Sonmez, who kept going after him and saying, Oh, really lovely that the Washington Place, you know, Washington Post lets people like this. Work here, and it went on and on. And people, he got suspended for a month without pay, and other people. In the, and like,
1: now this is publicly; these are called people at the Washington yeah, Post. Yeah, this is kidding. starting to get covered by CNN.
0: Yeah, and like her another colleague, is like Felicia, like, look, it wasn't a great idea, and I I'd agree, it wasn't a great idea. But like, you decide, you keep like attacking your colleagues publicly. Like, please stop. She attacked that guy, another journalist. It, within saying, literally, just wrote Felicia, please stop. Wouldn't do it on and on and on. It's become a five-day story, a six-day story. So yesterday I was messaging with um, Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan. I was like, how many hours before she's fired? And uh, Matt guessed 72. It was one. <laughs> the Washington Post eventually just said, we cannot have you representing the Washington Post anymore as a journalist. Um, you are You're fired. Now, I can absolutely guarantee you this is not the last we have heard from Felicia okay, Sonmez. so
1: over under on how long before the lawsuit? Well, so she's already sued the Pope. Well, not so she.
0: She no she, the next one. Um. Oh well, I'm sure there are people talking to her now. But but a couple of things. Um. Number one, it's going to be. We were kind of hashing this out. when We were texting yesterday. It's like she has Felicia Sonmez in the time she's been there has planted uh, several sort of. She's preemptively planted issues that would make it difficult to fire one she represents herself as a, a survivor of sexu- sexual abuse number two she represents herself as someone um that has certain mental illness she is obviously been trying to represent herself who's fighting and she says this very very plainly in this week's tweets as someone who is you know fighting for for women and and for people to, you know against sexism but Two days ago, she pivoted and she pivoted to race. And she said, you know, I'm speaking up now for all the people of color and not the rich white men who are the ones that get the better pay here at the Washington Post. Yes, this was yesterday's tweets. And she was, in my estimation, trying to get more allies because, you know, the thing is that when when the whole Kobe Bryant thing happened, the Washington Post guild, which they should, they have to stand up for their employees. But also, I mean, Thousands of people stood alongside. This was, first of all, it was 2020, so it was still very Me Too-y. People, like, stood by her side and said, you cannot, you, because the Washington Post apparently, according to Felicia, and I guess there's some truth to it, did not want her reporting on certain Issues of sexual assault, I believe it was the Brett Kavanaugh um, um, hearing, because she was so vocal, including on Twitter, about her own status that they felt that she was not going to be able to walk in and report in a way that I guess they felt was balanced. I'm not the editors over there, and I also do not know what happened. But this was her claims. So she was claiming to be, you know, the representative and the voice of all these sorts of issues. And of course, people stood by her. But it is now 2022, and not that these issues are any less important than they ever were. Of course, they're just as important. But Felicia, as the representative for these things, to speak for the paper, to speak for you, people started to back away. They started to back out of the room, and there's a there's a tweet somewhere that I will find from earlier the, in the year. I can't remember what it was, where she was just continuing to attack people. People became exhausted by this, and the rest of us who have been watching this are like, You can't, I mean, the Washington Post became the news this week. I mean, not the news. They're supposed to be writing about things. They're supposed to be writing about Ukraine and January 6th and any other issue they want to write about. But instead, they are the news. And all of us who are in the news business are like, this can't, it's got to stop. You can't run an organization this way. So they have, they have uh, let her go to answer your question when the next lawsuit is. Well, you have to think. Even though she's planted these 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 issues preemptively, like you can't fire me because I'm sort of a protected class, I got to say there's got to be something within the bylaws that's like if you're if you're doing this with like actual malice and you're disrupting our ability to do business, we can't just accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll say one thing before we go on. I, I tweeted about this yesterday. I, I put up that it was inevitable. Number one, I put a link to Emily Yaffe's story, which is just truly go read this piece. And then you can read mine too, if you want to sort of re- reverse engineer how we got here. Um, and I did ask the question yesterday. I'm like, for all the people that treated Jonathan came in like dog shit. I was like, and, and he's just like literally trying to say, do you see what is happening to me with these women's accusations? And they didn't care. I'm like, is anybody going to like, is anyone going to relook at their reaction and say, gee, maybe we got that wrong. Sorry yeah, let's, let's wait for that to happen. But I did, I did tweet that I actually, I have mixed feelings about Sonmez, even mm-hmm. though I've been a real detractor of hers. And people are like, what do you mean? Is it just between like intolerance and hatred? And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's that she's been trying to, she's been trying to Assuage some sort of hurt or anger in herself. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible the amount yeah. of vitriol by hurting others. Now, whether yeah. she understands that she's hurting others or not, I don't know. But she it almost seems to me she's stuck in some sort of like teretic cycle where she can't stop. And this is terrifying to me. And I do feel for someone that's in such terrible shape. And the last thing I'll say is that um. A couple of people I've been talking to this week are like, I feel bad for her that she does not have someone in her life that literally takes her and says, Felicia, you need to stop here. Come to my house. I'm taking your phone. I'm making you soup and you're going to stop. And that, you know, my, my dear friend, Lizzie Wolf. She said, I knew if I were doing this, Nancy Rommelman would take me to her house and, you know, take my phone and give me a nice tequila drink. And I was like, and pie, Um, because that's because. You have to do this. She was just she was in such a destructive cycle, and that some she didn't have that or didn't take anyone up on that is terribly sad. And I I can feel badly for her, like you feel this way for Till Swan. I'm, I don't feel that way for Till Swan. I know you don't, but <laughs> do, one of us. I do feel that way for her. That that her life is so hellish. And someone else also told me that a couple of days ago was her fortieth birthday. Oh and what did goodness. she what did she spend doing it? She spent. She spent oh, money my on Twitter. It's this is this is
1: sad. You know, yeah. back in <clears throat> back in April or whatever when we met and and my Atlantic article ran and I was getting dragged on Twitter for days. <clears throat> I had a lot of people rally around me telling me, don't engage. Don't yeah. engage. You can't win. Put the phone away. Get out. Yeah. Find Come over. People you love. Yeah. Get in the sunshine. This this is going to pass and don't waste your time, your precious time on earth trying to fight the unwinnable war. I'm so glad that they did that because when you're <clears throat> in that position, you're suddenly like, well, every, is everybody watching? Do I need to look strong? And, you know, I think it's one of these places where for me, I will say that being strong in that moment was walking away from it and, and 100%. letting the, you know, cause it just was clear to me that the outrage needed, a host body and that my mine was the host body for a couple days and that the outrage was going to move on to another host body after after a certain amount of time, which is exactly what happened. Um, I was contacted by one of Felicia's friends over a direct message on Twitter and this person had listened to our podcast and felt that we were a little tough on her. And the message was very civil. Okay. And he said, you know, I think what people don't understand is a lot of the backstory at the Washington Post. And that's it's true. I don't know much about that at all, about, you know, whether or not she was allowed to, to cover sexual assault cases when she had been a survivor. I mean, I have to say, I I on principle, I don't think that should matter. I think if it does matter, then I, you have a problem with the reporter. There's a problem with the reporter. Um if you feel like their coverage isn't fair, then that's I don't know. It's like it's like a I think that's what the
0: contention is. Again, I don't I don't know deeply. I think that they felt because she was so vocal about her own sexual assault, which let's remember, let's remember is a very the only thing I can tell you to do is go read go read Emily's article in my article and, and look at the timeline or listen to what we've talked about. It's um it's very it's I, I mean you're not supposed to question people, but it's extremely questionable. I, I'm sorry, you know look, you know these stories online where people say they had cancer. And they get a lot of sympathy, maybe even money. Then it turns out they had no cancer. It's like, okay, do I want them writing about cancer patients? Like, it's very, it's very squishy. And I'm not, I was not in the room with Felicia and and whatever things that she's talking about. But it's, it's, I got to tell you, first of all, number one, the Washington Post gets to assign whoever they want to stories. Sorry, that's it. You want, you want, you want want to be the assigning editor? You got to, you know, Form your own publication, right? But I can understand them feeling not extremely comfortable because she seemed to have, and maybe it was just one little axe to grind of her own, but maybe they didn't know if that she was going to have a bigger axe in general, I I
1: don't know. Well, you know, she actually uh, represents a generation of firebrands that are creating some complications for newspapers across the country. Uh, A number of people who are very vocal, wild out on Twitter, strike hard. And the question is, how is that compatible with the the traditionally neutral role of journalism. And perhaps it's the case that the neutral role of journalism is changing. One of the things that you and I have talked about, she falls smack dab in the center of that. But what uh, her friend was saying to me was that he really worried about her and that- I do too. Yeah, I know. I do too. <laughs> and he said, you know, I think the level of scrutiny that she's faced could make anyone bonkers. Or maybe he just said, like, would make me bonkers. And I wrote back and said, you know, it's very likely that's true for me too. And I think that's always a good reminder for me, that old biblical saying, you know, I'm not much for the Bible, but I think that it has a lot of great timeless wisdom. And one of them is there, but for the grace of God go I. And I, I don't know, you know, were I a young, ambitious, 30-something reporter caught in a different generation, different ideologies, you know, who I would end up being and what I would end up doing. And I do think I might, Th- that, that kind of, when people are in fear, they exhibit their worst behavior. Oh, absolutely. And she seems like somebody that is in fear, you know? I've
0: written this many times. People, when, when people are afraid when they're in an emergency situation they make terrible decisions terrible. they they just do i mean you you know uh, which is one of the reasons I keep hammering on this point that the journalist's job is to keep people calm. If you, if you, if you're constantly whipping up people's anxieties and fears, this is, this is a terrible, this is a, this is a disservice to the reader. And I think in a sense, you know, Felicia Sonmez did do that. If she's constantly telling you that my workplace is terrible and, and dangerous and unfair, it's like, well, that's not really a good thing to do. And, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this, this is interesting what you're saying in terms of a new generation of, of journalism, like two things. Number one, when I still lived in Los Angeles, it was a young journalist, she was a blogger, actually, she was kind of popular. And there was a small publication that wrote a piece about her kind of like, um, it was kind of like, a, almost like a little bit of a movie star profile. And I, she was pretty young, and she was kind of pretty. And I, I My friends, we were all about 10 years older, and and there's one gal in particular, she was like, Can you believe she let that? peace be written about her. Oh my God. I'd be so embarrassed. I'm like, shit, if I were 25,
1: I would have loved it. Hell yeah. you know, I was like, I, I Put couldn't. Put me on the pro- cover. I best under 25, exactly. best 25 under 25. She's so pretty. I mean, like oh, I would have yeah, yeah.
0: eaten it up with a spoon, but I will also say something. There's something about being a journalist. Like, you know, they say you shouldn't be the story and sometimes you do become the story and whatever. Okay. You, 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 know, you definitely don't want to court that, but. I'm sorry to say this, like, can you name any particular piece that Sonmez wrote that was like, wow, that was an incredible piece about the White House. She's on the White House beat. Like, do you recall seeing her byline and thinking, wow, this person, whoever she is, is just breaking some super interesting news She wasn't. And that's, you know, this is also a problem. Like, you're going to put up with a lot of, you know, what did we talk about last time? We talked about Johnny Depp. We talked about Johnny Depp on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. We don't, we were not on the set. We don't know. But there's rumors that he was sort of not becoming the best person. You know, everybody had to wait. And maybe he had an earpiece for his lines. Well, you put up that with that because he's the star, right? right. And then you don't. Uh, Felicia Sonmez was not a star reporter at the Washington Post. I mean, she's not, uh, Taylor Lorenz has actually written some good stuff. Um, they're, you know, they're probably gonna keep her. They're probably hopefully gonna give her a bunch of, you know, slaps on the wrist, <laughs> get it together, lady, and she'll stay. But but Sonmez was not pulling her weight in terms of what she was being paid for. She was actually just creating this issue. So she she had to go. Um, in terms of what I don't know. What do you think? When do you think the lawsuit's gonna drop? And what is the lawsuit? Like what what leg does she have wrongful to Wrongful termination. How is it? oh Well, okay, wrongful. What's rightful termination? What do you need to do? Do you need to shoot a gun off uh, from the roof of the Washington Post? Like, what do you, what's what's rightful? Ter- like, w- what has she done not to be terminated?
1: I don't know. I don't know legal yeah. stuff. I just think yeah. that there's, you know, so many of these things get worked out in court. And usually when something like this happens, there's, if somebody's been litigious, they'll continue to be litigious. I don't, you know, I don't know, sexism, Uh, marginalized populations. I would hope. I have no idea. I (laughs) I don't know what it is.
0: I really hope. I mean, I I say this with absolute and utter sincerity. I know that there are people that are vindictive and want to see her suffer. I, I understand that. But even people that I shall not name close to this situation feel, feel badly for her. And if I were, God, I could almost get emotional here. I really, really hope that she is in the arms of people that love her and care for her or even a place where she can get some rest or yeah. whatever, a, a hotel that has like a spa and she's there with friends. Something, I, 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 it would kill me to think of her alone in her apartment. This is not good. I really, I truly hope that she's cared for because this is not a good place to be. And it is, she's absolutely right. When she tweets, she tweeted at someone that, te- that tweeted at her, Felicia stop. She's like, do you understand? Do you understand and see the level of abuse that I'm receiving? That is hundred percent true. She has received she was thousands upon thousands of abusive things, but she also like took all of those and took, I don't know, the worst ones, the best ones, the most poetic ones, and laid them out in a beautifully curated page so everybody could read it this is someone that is, that needs to stop and needs to be cared for. And I, and I, I do hope that she's getting the care. She, I would hope that she would get, I'm not saying that she needs, I'm, I'm not her, I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, and I, I'm sure I will do some more writing about this. And I, and I, I pledge to do it with care.
1: It it would seem to me that the Washington post was not a good fit for this person. Um, that, that, you know, They didn't mesh her purposes, what she wanted to do, where she wanted to go with her career. And so, you know, to me, when when I get dumped by a guy that I that I fought really hard for, you know, there's a saying in AA, it's kind of annoying, but it's rejection is God's protection. Right. And the idea here is that it's a gift. Even though this is not what you wanted, this is not the ending you would have written for yourself, that it is a gift to be let free when something isn't working. And so my hope here would be that, that you know, obviously there is something she wants to do. She's very driven. She's very ambitious. Sure. Go for, for sure. it. You know, you have been unloosed to, to, to do what it is that you feel is your purpose or your find your strength, find your voice, whatever it is. So.
0: Let's see. Stay tuned. Um, it certainly was a wild week. And I have to say, uh, Oliver Darcy over at CNN, who I kind of often don't really agree. They, they send out that day. What's it called? I get the daily, uh, CNN blast from him. And, um, anyway, he did a, he did a pretty good job of covering it. So I
1: agree. Yeah. Nancy, Will you tell me a story about San Francisco?
0: Sure. Okay. But the first thing I want to say, and we will we will link it here. So um, my friend Nellie Bowles, some people may know her name. She's married to Barry Weiss. We're both dear friends. She had a piece in The Atlantic that I think popped yesterday um, because she mentions Chessa Boudin, the very progressive DA, getting voted. He was recalled. I was at the party on um, on Tuesday night for the recall and um, we're going to put a whole bunch of links. Um, she wrote a piece that dropped in the Atlantic yesterday um, that she clearly had been working on earlier because mm-hmm. it's a long, long piece that is so Stunning! It is one of the best. You know, I've been talking about my favorite piece was the um, the problem with the marriage cure or whatever it's called. The, not the oh, problem, the trauma but, plot. The trauma You're plot. Sorry, I've I've, ups, I've 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 crossed that with a Catherine Boo's old old piece, which is also great. Let's put a link to that too. Um, yeah, I'm obsessed with that piece. But uh, she wrote a piece about San Francisco and how um, it, the government has failed it. That is so beautiful and so beautifully interest, um, illustrated with black and white photos. So we'll we'll link that. And she really. She really unpacks it fully. Um, So what's happened in San Francisco is that in 2019, uh, a new progressive district attorney was elected. His name was Chesa Boudin. Chesa Boudin was the biological son of Kathy Boudin and, um, and, and, Wow, Nancy. Hi. Good morning. I need more coffee. I'll find it in a second. Um, and his, some
1: other person. And this
0: other dude. Uh, God, I cannot believe well, I. Bill Ayers this. is
1: in there somewhere. He's but in there later. He's the adopted. But in
0: any way, yes, he is. So um, his parents had been members of the the seventies radical violent underground group, the Weather the Weather Underground. And in 1981, they were involved in a. Um, they were driving the getaway car for a Brinks robbery, uh, for three members of I think it was all the Black Liberation Army. I'm not really sure. Again, I have no brain. Um, and it went bad. It went really bad. And, um, two police officers, this is in Nyack, New York were murdered as was the guard for the, the, the Brinks guard. And even though, um, Uh, uh, Boudin's parents. He was 14 months old. They dropped him with a babysitter, did not do the shooting. They were each sent to jail for murder.
1: Um, He was... Boudin's father is David Gilbert.
0: David Gilbert. I was like, David Gillis? I'm like, that's that's a country singer, somebody? Anyway, so he was then adopted by sort of the most telegenic and heads of the Weather Underground, who was Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. And so he was raised by them in the Bay Area with their other two sons and... um, you know, his parents got out at different times from jail. Actually, his father only uh, last year, his mother in 2003. She died earlier this year. They both went on. Anyway, in any case, he was elected on a very progressive platform to be to stop incarcerating people for low level crimes, including low level drug crimes, which I completely agree with. Um, he wanted to have different kinds of restorative justice, including, you know, um, uh, I was going to say work release. That's something in, that I knew from L.A., including just um, different therapies and working with the community. I, I don't know a whole lot of, about restorative justice, but it was what, not
1: incarceration. <laughs> what was exciting about Chesapeake Dean?
0: Well, he was I think he was he came in at a time when there was sort of a big push against um that people were really pushing for police reform, right? There was a kind of the defund the police. 2019
1: is the summer of George Floyd. No, no, tw- uh, 2020, 2020. Oh, George I see. Floyd. Well, 2019 yeah. was, was the summer of George Floyd, but th- you're saying he was elected in 2020.
0: No, he was elected in 2019. George Floyd was killed in 2020.
1: Oh. Screaming.
0: Okay. Now, I know. What, I can't remember names. You can't remember dates between the two of us. Sarah, we're going to get it. And, but no, but there was already a defund the police because, you know, the police do not always cover themselves in glory. There's corruption. There had been corruption in the San Francisco Police Department. Progressive governments are usually clashing with the police in their City. So they definitely were her. He was young, he was somewhat telegenic. He had this crazy backstory, which I think was somewhat sexy to San Franciscans. You know, San Francisco's a pretty liberal city. Right now it's 6.7% Republican. And people, people like new, right? They're like, well, you know, maybe he's going to bring some ideas. Maybe we can have a progressive regime that brings better things to the city. What were the problems in the city? The problems in the city were homelessness. The problems in the city were, you know, terribly high, you know, housing prices. Um, And they just, they, they took a chance on the guy. Well, his first... I have, I have, I'm, by the way, I've written two long, three pieces about this, none of which I've put here on our site because I didn't know if people were interested. I will put links to all of them. And if you go to the reason.com homepage, there's a piece that I wrote yesterday that's up there about the recall. Um, in any case, um, Things started going bad right away. First of all, he was clashing with the police and that's not... The, the police did not like him. No, they and didn't like did him. he did not like the police. He's sort of an anti-law and order guy. And, you right. know, there's something to law and order and there's something to being against law and order. But these things were were clashing in a big way. You also had COVID. So COVID sort of weirdly skewed the crimes in the city because people couldn't leave their houses. So what was going up? Well, one thing that was going up in... in San Francisco was the homeless situation and the drug and overdose situation. So between 2019 and 2021, the end of 2021, there were 1,792 overdoses in San Francisco, accidental overdoses. So this is a city of I think 900,000 people, and they're very visible. People were, if you read Nellie's article, it's it's utterly heartbreaking. People were literally dying on the street, and there's your dead body on your street for 11 hours.
1: There's a great line she has about the tenderloin. She said, from the outside, what it looks like is young people being eased into death on the sidewalk, surrounded by half-eaten boxed lunches.
0: This is 100%. I I have several pieces up. Again, we'll link them. I I spent the afternoon the other day down at a UN plaza surrounded by people both shooting up, which I'm just, they're just shooting up right there, and um, people that were literally lying on the sidewalk, dying They're Like you're, I'm not exaggerating this. You are watching people die. And when you look at this, you have to say, okay, so, so what happened at the end of 2021? Mayor London Breed, who's also now been clashing with, um, Boudin a lot, who's a lot of the assistant DAs in his office have left in, in protest to the fact that he is not prosecuting, Drug dealers. He says the police aren't bringing them cases, him, him cases to prosecute. Well, both of these things are true. Do the police sort of slow roll the arrests because they know that there's not going to be any prosecutions within Boudin's office? Yes. Does is Boudin saying they're not bringing me the arrest? Yes. So who you know who's at fault? Who knows? What I can tell you is that in all of 2021, he prosecuted. He made against three drug dealers. Three. In all of 2021. And we are talking about an absolute epidemic of fentanyl deaths and overdose deaths and and the explosion of homelessness on the street. Many of these whom are addicted, obviously there's some mental illness too. Anyway, the end of 2021, London Breed sets up this center called the Lincoln Center, which is now called the Tenderloin Center. It is down by UN Plaza. It's sort of, you know, fenced off, and you can go inside and it's supposed to be a one-stop shop for. If you're, you know, if you're experiencing houselessness, which is I think the proper, what, what they call it, if you if you need different medical stuff, if you need to be hooked up with different social services, you can go in and get a one-stop shop and get help, which is a terrific idea. And we're going to keep it all in this one area so people know where to go. Well, they also, from day one, made it a safe place to use drugs. So people come in and, you know, maybe they have the intention of getting some, some, uh, housing, uh, information. But what they do first is they go and sit in an Adirondack chair and they shoot up. So, uh, to, according to one, um, he's an addict. Uh, he works to help addicts and he's a former addict himself. He's like of all the people that pass through there. La- I think he said last month, one half of 1% actually availed themselves of the services mm-hmm. and everybody else is just using. So what also happens that area, now you've concentrated that here, it spills out onto the streets. And so you are literally sitting around the people that are dying in front of you. And then there's this like rock wall and they're all shooting up or in, nodding out. It's, um, it's, It's, it's horrifying. So is Chesed Boudin to blame for drug addiction? No. Is he to blame for homelessness? No. No, you can't lay any of that at his feet. However, what people perceived they could lay at his feet is the fact that he refused to start making arrests of people that were dealing drugs. We're not talking a low level person that's shooting up. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that are repeatedly arrested for dealing drugs. And his, okay, I'm framing this. This is what was told to me by people who were his detractors, okay? That his reasoning is that in, in California, there's a mechanism. If you're, if you're an immigrant, you have dodgy immigration status. If you are arrested, they need to take that into consideration because if they, if they prosecute you, you can be deported. And if you're deported, and, and the example people kept giving to me was Honduras, because I guess a lot of the people that are dealing drugs on the street are Honduran, they will then be sent home or they will be murdered as will their mothers. Now, this is a bit dramatic, right? And of course, we don't want to send people home for being murdered. But my question was, if you prosecuted three people last year for dealing drugs, where's your data that are saying all these people are being sent home for Honduras and are being murdered? You have no data. You This is not being tracked. I think it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a, we are better than the
1: other people kind of
0: scare tactic, <laughs> I would say. <clears throat> um, in any case, go ahead. I, I was just
1: going to make an observation that so much of this story and the story of San Francisco, you really feel this in Nellie's Nelly's essay is the excess of compassion leading to a kind of societal collapse that it leads to a breakdown in law and order. And she she tells a really interesting story about a jacket being ripped uh, off her back, ripped off her back and she doesn't say anything. And She says she has a line that says the normal thing to do then was to yell to try to get help, even, dare I say, from a police officer. But this felt somehow lame and maybe racist.
0: Well, there's also a story that Chesa Boudin, before he was elected, didn't report his own car being broken into. This is a big, big deal. Everybody, no matter whose side, if there's there's many sides, but we'll say the car theft stuff is insane. Like you can't leave anything in your car. People just leave the windows down and say, please don't break my windows. There's so much theft. Then there's also home invasions. Um, And yes, the excess of compassion, that's what people cite, which sounds like really weird. It's like, well, don't we want to be as compassionate as possible? And I believe that is what people that back Boudin felt, number one, we want to be as compassionate as possible to everybody, um, but we've got, we've sort of got an enemy here and the enemy is the police. So what was happening? So are you, are you being compassionate to the average citizen now who has this real blight down on market in 8th and 9th by the UN Plaza? And some people were like, well, what, what do you care, Nancy, what do you care if this is in the middle of the city? Well, you kind of do have to care because what happens? People don't feel, feel safe. And that area, apparently, which I was very surprised at. So San Francisco has like the lowest population of children, like of any major city. Because it's so expensive. So crazily expensive. And, and people perceive whether it's true or not, because this is actually true. So people are like, oh my God, the spike in crime in San Francisco is outrageous. Well, that's actually not true. But there are, in terms of theft, it is true. So it's like it actually mm. is affecting you. It's your car. It's your house. It's your jacket being torn off your back. People don't feel safe there. I walked past a park the other morning. There's guys, you know, crashed out under the playing gym. You're not going to have your kid. You're just not going to. It's a quality of life thing. People were like, we appreciate that you're being super empathetic to people that are, are committing crimes. And we're not even against that. I'm not against that. But the problem is, what about the rest of the population who is not committing crimes, who's not living on the street, who is not a drug addict? And they did feel that they could lay some of this at Dean's feet. And so they did. And they voted him out fairly decisively, 60 um, percent. To 40%, which was the last I checked. So he's gone. Now the mayor appoints a different DA. I think I know I, I, there are two people in the running. Um, Brooke Jenkins, who is a former district attorney who resigned under Boudin in protest last November, I believe it was, or something last fall. And Tom Ostley, who was had been in the DA's office a long time, who was fired two days into Boudin's regime. And I interviewed both of them when I was there. I'll be writing about them. And I, I think they're both sort of in the running for the job. And then there will be an election at some point and the people will have to elect uh, whoever the next DA is. But for now, there's been a bit of a pivot in San Francisco. Um, I, I was there at the school board recall. I'll put a, I'll put a link to that article there. And one of the women who was involved in both of the sort of campaigns to get the school board members recalled and to get, um, Dean recalled, I was at the, uh, uh, the watch party with her and she said, you come back because we're going to keep, we're going to keep injecting sanity into, um, into San Francisco politics and maybe make things better. You know what? Let's see if they can do that. Let's see if it does make things better. Let's see if this sort of like really progressive uh, wing of people in the party, because they're there. I went to a party for Boudin one night. There was a band and people were happy and they were very chatty with me. Very, very nice. And they really believed in his vision. I mean, they're they're citizens too. So let's see um, what happens to uh, what happens to San Francisco.
1: I'm curious, what is your... <clears throat> relationship with San Francisco and and before you answer that I just want to say that like you know back in the 90s I was living in Austin and the stories of San Francisco were so fabled then you know friends of mine that would go visit would just describe it as like the most beautiful place on earth and from a sort of freedom of freedom to pursue to kind of march to your own drummer and from a you know, kind of resplendent roses and crashing waters and fog and all this sort of dramatic, um, like, the scene that is San Francisco. Um, I never, I have not spent a ton of time in San Francisco. I'm much more of a Southern California girl and never quite, clicked into it, but I have a great fondness for that era. I wonder, did you ever fall in in love with San Francisco that way? Well, I fell in love in San Francisco. I met
0: met my husband there and, um, in 1997 and he'd been living there for 10 years. And, um, it's funny because he worked South of Market, which at that point was just like grungy and gross. Um, so we spent a lot of time there. We spent a lot of like time in like, like, like little, like gay dive bars. And we were more kind of of the gritty persuasion. But we also did like all the beautiful things like, you know, New Year's Day, brunch at top of the mark. And like, it was, okay. San Francisco is a beautiful city. And Nellie really, I mean, Nellie, the beginning of her piece is a complete love letter to the city. And I will also say I was staying um, this particular time in an area by the Painted Ladies, by Alamo Park, really, really sweet area. The city is beautiful right now. And I, and I will, again, I'll put my, my pieces that I wrote that I published this week. I talked about the fact that I've never seen the city look so beautiful. And then it's like, well, Nancy, then why in the world, how does this, how does this mesh? How does this mesh with you saying that people are also dying on the street? Well, because they are. So that's something I think that, that even though San Franciscans want to be open and let people do what they want, there's been a drug culture in San Francisco since the fifties, right? They're, they're also saying, and, 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 and the argument against this is like, well, who's saying it, Nancy? It's the Republicans. It's the rich tech bros. And yes, they are. I sat on the plane. I I think I told you, um, when I was going out to San Francisco and there was a young guy, he's like 22 and he's like, you know, the tech bros are all like, we we don't want the city to be disgusting and changing. We want it to be the way we want it. And he's like, you know, they just got here. Like right. the city was something else. Everybody that moves in wants it to be the way they want it. Well, the city sure. will the city will evolve. However, yeah. I I I don't think you're going to find many people in San Francisco, even the most hardcore progressive person that's going to say, you know that scene of death down at UN Plaza? I dig it, man. Let's bring it everywhere. Let's bring it to the Presidio. Let's bring it up to Alamo Park. Let's put these dying people everywhere because I think that's the way forward for our city because we're being compassionate to these people and saying, we don't care. That's okay. Live your life. Do it. Just die right here in front of me. People don't want that. And it's 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 horrifying. Sarah, it's horrifying.
1: No, it and, sounds absolutely horrible. And so
0: is it is it the case that doing getting Boudin out of there is going to make any change whatsoever. I don't know, but they were willing to take that chance and say, let's try to get some saner drug policy in here. I don't know what that is. I I don't know what that is, but I, it's not working. What, What they're doing right now, at least according to the voters is not working.
1: I wanted to go back to this idea of law and order breaking down. Um, Nellie's story about the jacket being ripped off her back, you know, reminds me, it takes me back to that George Floyd summer. And I remember, like, a friend of mine had the windows smashed out on the place where she was, she ran a catering business. And she mentioned this on Facebook in despair, you know, how awful it was that during one of these protests, like, some asshole, you know, smashed her windows. And it was, Wild to watch people in the comments flock in there to say, No, this is about racial justice. You're not allowed to say this. Like, don't make a complaint. This is not, I mean, and it freaked me out. And then the next day, sure enough, she came back and was like, I apologize. She apologized for complaining that the windows to the place where she runs her business were smashed out by some rando.
0: Oh hi, did you know that I spent the entire summer oh, of 2020
1: yeah, in Portland and also <laughs> yeah, 2021? What am I doing telling you this? So, this is like you talking to me about blackout.
0: Yeah, it's um, you know, I I, you know, it's funny when I when I turned in my first draft of my piece for reason, it was uh they were like it's a little law and ordery and I, and I the fact of the matter is when I spent all this time in in uh, Portland watching the activists assault police stations and assault the federal building and always, always, always an only claim to be on the defensive, that they were only doing this because of the terrible things the police were doing, which the police sometimes were doing. Sure. But when you watch it for, for weeks on end, you realize that they're giving as good as they get. And that is how they are expressing their feelings of anger and rage and sadness and, and they feel that, that the, I think for and it's primarily young people that are going around and smashing people's windows. And, mm-hmm. it, and in Portland, it was definitely without a doubt, young white people, because mm-hmm. that's a Portland, a white that's city. Portland. Um, they, don't yet have the language or the tools. They've got the language of whatever sort of sloganeering they have. You know, it's, you know, you know, defund the police and, you know, kill the pigs. And it's just, you know, the, the usual things that you hear. Um, but they don't have the language yet to actually build things. I, I've, I've written this a, one gazillion times. Like they're really super good at breaking things down, but now once it's broken down, it's like, okay, kids now what? And they don't have that. So when I, I, I've stood there, I mean, I have stood there multiple times watching them break windows. And these are like young white kids. And the businesses are like literally completely random businesses, including this one business called Wild Fang, which is like sort of this like gender neutral lesbian clothing thing that like super, super on the progressive side. And I'm like, why are you doing this? this. And they can't, they actually can't answer you. They can come back the next day in their like mob tweets and say, you know, black lives matter. It's like, okay, so what about that black owned business? I mean, I had this, a story I wrote in Portland. What were your, these are black owned businesses. How did you help? And I talked to this one Antifa girl and she's like, well, you know, it's sad that that has to happen. She's Mm -hmm. like, I agree. It's sad. It's bad. But you know what? It's the larger message that counts. I'm like, what is the larger message? What's the larger message that you're that you're actually working toward fixing? What is it? And that's what. Well, they're saying the racial injustice. We have to yeah. have a racial reckoning. We have to we have to fix the problems of racism. Well, obviously there are going to be some people against that. I'm certainly not against that. But you definitely have not shown that that is what fixes it. And I and I and I don't think anybody's shown that yet. Like we and anyway. I feel for your friend's business. I have many of businesses I know that that happened to. I've watched it and I have asked, asked till I'm blue in the face of the people doing it. Can you explain to me how this is fixing things? And you're absolutely right. It's like, well, they'll say to me, well, you're part of the problem. your are asking for that shows that you're part of the problem. I'm like, I'm just asking a very simple question here.
1: One of the interesting things that happened and you hear it when Nellie says that to call a police person, policeman, policewoman, listen to me, um, would be lame or maybe even racist. That's a dangerous place to be in in a society where police are there to protect and serve. And one of the things we've done is to outsource violence. To a cadre of paid police people, as opposed to doing it, enacting it ourselves.
0: What do you mean by paid police people? Just police officers. Policemen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, okay, like okay. we've
1: outsourced it to the police. Sure. As opposed to like we're not supposed to have duels anymore.
0: Um, I will tell you, I was at a um, uh, it was in I think September of 2020. I was in front of the uh, main police station called Justice Center downtown. There was what they called a back the blue event. Like every single night, there was the the normal um, activists uh, uh, molesting the buildings, the justice center and right next door to the federal building every night, every night, every night. And you really, you never, you very, very, very rarely saw anybody that wasn't there to do that. You didn't see any opposing sides. Like there were not like the Proud Boys marching through or anything. But like, this was like a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon thing. Some people I think came from the suburbs. They were super pro-police. There were about 20 of them standing in front of the um Police building saying, like, yay, we love the police, kind of. And across the street were mm, started out at about a hundred sort of activists screaming at them. And I was there and I saw two young people and I said, Hey, you know, do you really believe all police are terrible? Yes, they're all terrible. Like down to every single person. I'm like, have you ever, ever been in a situation where A police officer has been helpful. And this kid with like a bat looks at me. He's like, I'll beat your ass in for saying that. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. You've just like, you've just proved that I'm wrong. It's like, what's happening here? That actually did turn into kind of a weird, there's a little bit of a LARPing scene, but kind of like more than LARPing because the, um, I think the Proud Boys did show up there. It was the Proud Boys and also this uh, Patriot Prayer guys came in. And they were just literally, I've got video of it. I'll try to find some of the video. And like, they were just literally shouting each other's faces. However, so the the Proud Boys and and Patriot Prayer guys are getting right in people's faces. The activists are getting right. I mean, I got to tell you, there was absolutely nobody that had the upper hand here. They were screaming at each other. Now the difference is that some of the proud boys that were the patriot prayer I'm not sure which ones they were they carry they open carry guns right and meanwhile the 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 antifa folks and the activists have like frozen water bottles but nobody fired any shots everybody was firing spring bear spray at each other and actually the the proud boys guys they got marched out of town and the the activists were were going after them they had a boombox of Tom Tom Petty playing whoa, back down. And they're like running after these guys and oh, banging wow. drums. And, you know, it's interesting. I've written out, I think, 24 stories about the whole Portland situation. I'll, I'll put a link to my substack here so people can read them. And I have to say um, the, the view that, you know, somehow Portland was constantly besieged by these right-wing groups and that, you know, everybody was just playing defense as Portland – that is not what happened. The the activists were definitely, I would say giving better than they got. Um yeah. and um I'm not sure to what good effect in the city. Someone asked me that yesterday. I gotta look into what's going on in Portland politics right now, but I don't know. Um I don't know that things have um that they really changed things for the better, but you know, maybe I'm wrong.
1: You know, I dated a detective in my early thirties and it was one of the f- like sort of foundational relationships in my adult life. And it gave me a lot of sympathy for <clears throat> the world of cops. And, um, and it also gave me a lot of like, I don't know what to say. Like all the stereotypes are true. Like it also gave me a lot of like, oh shit. Um, stereotypes this, what amongst cops? What's that? Stereotypes among stereotypes amongst cops. Yeah, or- there's so many like stereotypes of cops, like hard drinking, cheat on their wives, you know, adrenaline junkies <clears throat> have pretty much like a lot of the same profiles as the criminals that they yeah that they um, chase, and you know it's just that one works on one side of the law and the other one outside the lines of the law. Um there are, I think, heroes in in that world, same as any. I think there are people that are lost and messed up, same as any. And it might be even higher than than usual because of the unreal amount of stress and, uh, I don't know, like, I hesitate to use the word trauma, but I don't think they would like that word. But It shapes your life to be around violence and darkness and shapes your soul.
0: Oh, I so years ago when I was writing for the LA Weekly, I did a cover story for them um, called, they called it Us Versus Them, The Code of the Cop Bar. And I went and I sat, spent about six months sitting at this um, uh, bar called The Shortstop, which was sort of on the way to downtown LA, Echo Park area. And um, I got to know a lot of the officers. Some were antagonistic to me. Some were super flirty with me. I got to that know the bartenders right. and the owners. And um, But one night I sat at the end of the bar with this one guy who clearly the other officers did not like. And uh, they didn't like him because he talked about what the job was like. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I'll tell you, Nancy, Like, I go home and I've been at a murder scene. He's like, I don't to tell my wife. I don't tell my wife about this. No. He's like, I can't, I can't. You just got to like swallow it down. But I guess he was saying a few other things. He was being somewhat, I guess the cops felt he was like revealing secrets of, uh, of the brotherhood or something. And they were just staring daggers at us the whole time. I'll put, I'll put a link to that piece too. That was an interesting eye opening piece for me about what cop life is like.
1: The first time I went to the bar with Nick, Nick was the name of the guy that I was dating. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Nick has to be went on, to the cop bar Nick he, has to he, be on the bingo card by the way what Nick yeah okay I card. bring him up a lot that's interesting that. <laughs> um well he he's such a fascinating character and it was such a like central story in my life so um uh, the first time he brought me into the bar, he looked at me and said, don't tell them a jur- you're a journalist. Oh, and no. I looked at him and he was like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> no, don't. No, 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 no. <laughs> do like, not. What am I going to tell them I do? I Unfortunately, to. they never asked. I mean, you yeah. know, like they didn't give a shit. They they didn't care what I did uh, for a living. They were just like, well, she's cute. She looks Irish. Well, it's also because you were with him. If you'd got exactly. in by yourself
0: as a journalist, it would not, oh, I, I, I had to it. tell, I had to tell people because I was there reporting, Um, but they, they, they slowly warmed up for me. And then when the article ran, they were pissed, but the, I got to, I have to say this only because it was, uh, it was important. You know, I spent a long time there and I had, you know, made friends there and people had trusted me. And I wrote the story and, you know, sometimes people don't like when you hold up a mirror, like they said this to you, but they don't like it. They don't like seeing it. And um. The owner called me, his name, what was his name? Bill something. And he's like, Nancy, I just want to tell you, you've got to write. And I know I sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but it was, it was good to hear that because I felt, I felt, you know, you feel, it's not nice when you write things that you do your best at and people get super mad at you.
1: (laughs) My experience with cops, and this is only my experience and it's completely, well, It is what it is, but is that they are fair people. Um, They can be assholes. They can Mm -hmm. be egomaniacs. um, They can be borderline unethical, all sorts of things. But they respond to like fairness. Like they'll be like, that was correct. Yeah, that hurt, but that was right.
0: Hmm. I guess I don't have a very deep relationship. I will say, and I think I told this to you yesterday, that when I was writing from Portland, and uh, in my estimation, a lot of the press was getting it wrong, and I knew why they were getting it wrong, because the story was being filtered through the activist lens very deliberately. Um, It's it's complicated, and I'll I'll put a link to a story that I wrote about that sort of broke it down and why. but I had several people in law enforcement, well, at this point now, probably more, almost a dozen, contact me and thank me for, for being fair. I will tell you, one of the people, um, when I was still on the ground in Portland, someone contacted me, who I, let's just call him John. And he said, I, have, I was in the federal building. I was dispatched by Trump. I'm one of the people that was in the federal building. I actually had to come back home where I'm based in El Paso, um, I'm part of this unit called, uh, BORTAC, which is the border patrol. And he said, you know, it was very difficult to read how we were characterized in the press. He's like, let me tell you what I do. Like he saves, you know, people from drowning when they're trying to cross, uh, the river. He is dispatched to like hurricane zones and like has to sleep on the street and make restaurants. This is what he is. He's a rescue guy. That's what he does. And he just happened to be part of the team that had been sent to the federal building. And he left. And we kind of stayed in touch. An interesting guy, thoughtful guy. Well, he, I don't know if it was him exactly, but some of the Bortec guys were the ones that went to Uvalde and were the ones that broke down the door and killed the shooter. And I wrote to him the next morning and I said, how's, how are the guys? How are you? And he said, not well. he's like the ones that had to spend you know 40 minutes doing triage on these dead kids he's like it's not they're having a really hard time and I I saw that I wrote about it I put it in a piece and I said I wonder if the people this one particular girl that I remember encountering in front of the federal building who was telling me about how all 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 you know law enforcement does is shoot their black friends in the street which is just not true at all. I wondered if she knew that that same person was the one that was knocking down a door, mm. murdering the murder of killing the murderer of children, and then working on these de- these children these dying children to save their lives. I wonder if it would at all alter her view of of these people. And I have to tell you, heartbreakingly, I thought the answer would be no. Mm. And that really breaks my heart because I understand that you want to make the police your enemy, and you might even be able—and I'm sure I can too—to come up with instances where they've behaved terribly. Mm-hmm. Hi, I was—I was reporting from the L.A. bar during the Rampart scandal. I mean, this, this can just people can behave really, really badly, mm-hmm. but they also can behave heroically, just as you and I and and our listeners—you can behave terribly. I'm, I'm sure I have and will, and you can behave heroically. And I think that when your agenda, your ideology tells you only and ever are the police is the problem. That's, that's not the way the world is. And that's not the way to make the world better. Um, so you asked me what I thought of the police. So there you go. There's my answer.
1: I wonder what your takeaways are from the recall um, as you' you've now left San Francisco yep. and it's behind you now, what does this moment tell us about where we are?
0: Well that's an interesting question because a lot of people are asking the question have we have we moved into an era where all the progressive district attorneys we we and mayors um, that we elected uh, into you know in Chicago and Philadelphia and Portland, is this a referendum are we turning a corner my answer to that is the same as we've in a lot of areas including like you know i think if it were 2018 and Felicia Sonmez well she did or 2020 when she made a certain stink she did not um she did not get fired we were at a different time in 2020 you know me too was still completely burning through the culture. We had George Floyd was killed. People really were committing to doing things in what we felt were a better way. But we overcorrected. We overcorrected to the point where no one was allowed to say anything that could possibly either, A, actually have an actual whiff of being misogynistic or racist, but actually more often, Not at all. You, they just, you know, people needed their next, they needed their next, um, caloric hit. I mean, you said about being, when you had your article in the Atlantic and people were piling onto you, you said, you know what? I knew I was told, my friends told me, bless them, that if I just stopped, They would go on to their next uh, person to destroy, and that—that's how this stuff works. People got addicted to the feeling that they were doing the right thing. Um, The latest fifth column episode, also bingo card. um, They talked. You already
1: hit this bingo card earlier when you said Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan. Sorry, well that's different. Bingo, different. Right in between. I didn't want to interrupt you though.
0: Um, Ilya, I can't remember the last his last name. The um, it's a long story. The the Georgetown Law, but anyway, they're talking about. How people overcorrect in order to feel that they're what are What are they doing it for, Sarah? In order to feel that, do they really feel they're moving the culture forward? Do they really feel the way that, that
1: I've always said it is that series is like uh, that culture is like a series of overcorrections, and each generation is trying to mis- correct the mistakes of the past, but they end up introducing new errors. Like.
0: Oh, thank you, Sarah Hepla, for saying things that I don't have the enough coffee in me today to say properly. You're welcome. So, That's a line so, from Blackout.
1: You can buy it on Amazon. The, yes, get um, it. <laughs> the guest on the fifth column was Ilya Shapiro, yes. the Georgetown University law professor that has recently written a pretty, pretty fascinating letter about leaving. It's
0: his his story is amazing. I record. I, we listened to it in the car uh, yesterday, driving between Tulsa and St. Louis. Um, but what was really interesting, and it's it's again, it's just the same. Now we're going to go back to um, to uh, Duke University. Like they asked him on air. It's like so. If your 150 colleagues, how many like reached out to you and stood by you and said, actually, we don't think you know we're, we're with you. We think that this is the same thing to do. It was like four out of 150. <sighs> So you really do have the groundswell uh, of people who either actually believe, like in his case, that he was a mis- oh, not just a misogynist and not just a racist, but a misogynistic racist. I mean, he was like two for two, you got a double um, which he wasn't. Um, so uh, asking where does this leave us in the culture? Is this going to be a is this going is this a symbol of change? I think so. I mean, I think I hope so. I think that we're not going to be stuck in an era where the immediate immolation of people is, is, is the thing that people cheer. They, they stand around that fire and cheer. Yeah. And that is what I've seen. I mean, I've seen that literally uh, yeah. when there was a murder in the street in Portland and I'll, I'll put a video up to it. There was some mm. activists, activists literally, I, I'm sorry, they were cheering that someone had just been murdered in the street. No, you're making me cry right now. It's too but late. But it's that's that, it, too it, late it, in
1: the podcast for you to start making me
0: cry. Sorry. Right now. Um well bingo. Uh <sighs> it's 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 just it's this is not okay. This is anti-human. Okay. Mm-hmm. We can't, we cannot behave this way. Everybody's gotta put the freaking brakes on and be more thoughtful. And if you have an objective, a political objective, well, you don't go the way you you achieve it is not by going and breaking windows and and seeing people destroyed in front of your eyes you you either create a system or you work within a system or you call you know Felicia Sonmez if she was really super pissed that that Dave Weigel had retweeted this tweet what a grown up does is picks up the phone or walks across the office and say Dave i think you're being a dick and i want to take you out for a drink and tell you why that's what grown ups do so let's all be more grown up and, and, and conduct ourselves in a mature fashion.
1: I think it's probably a sign of my naivete that, uh, but also maybe it's a sign of my wisdom, that I believe that the change starts in the connection between two people. I, I, I,
0: but absolutely, absolutely. you Because you have to actually take responsibility for your own actions then. You can't hide in a crowd of two million people or, or, a, or a faceless mob on Twitter. You have to stand up and take responsibility for your actions. You don't rally the troops to say, look, look at that bad person over there. And then people, because they don't know what to do, they either do or they don't, or they start yelling at you that you're terrible or they join your campaign. No, you do. You, I think that's absolutely true. You have to take responsibility for your own actions. And I think amazingly, when you take responsibility for your own, others will too. Shocking, right?
1: Nancy, do we have any housekeeping matters before we wind up here? Oh, a couple of things. So first of all,
0: our first book is going to be The Snakehead um, by Pat, Pat, Patrick Pat This is your book Keith. club. This is it your is,
1: smoke them if you got them book club. I know.
0: And I'm behind, guys. I'm sorry. I did not bring It's a big, heavy uh, hardback. I didn't bring it with me. Instead, I reread uh, Democracy by Joan Didion. Oh, my God. I just want this entire book like I want to, I want to actually insert that book inside my chest because Oh, my you heart, have a very
1: different take than Mary heart, McCarthy, who famously ripped it up oh, as we as we mentioned in that an earlier episode.
0: Book more than I can say. We'll talk about that another time. Wow. Um, but um, it's very romantic. But um, oh, interesting! I should read, read it. Yeah. I I
1: hmm. read
0: it. Read it. Um, um, so I'm a little behind on that, but once I, I'll probably finish that by the end of next week. So I'll announce that um, we are going to do. Maybe we'll do our um, special letters only for 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 paid subscribers only letters reading um, thing, maybe at the end of next I week. We'll when come I'm... up with a better name than that, but yeah. Well, that's the, did I stumble? That's the name. Uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> um, letters, and, uh, readers. Readers, letters, readers. Um, I um, that's the only housekeeping I can think of. What about you? Sarah? Well, I'm what?
1: almost. I'm rounding the bases on my Johnny Depp Amber Heard opus, and I hope to put it out this weekend. We'll probably drop this on Saturday. Maybe I'll have it up on Sunday morning as a okay. Sunday treat. Uh, the fact checking on this is an absolute monster, monster. Um, but it's been a lot of fun and I hope people still have patience for wanting to hear how this story unfolded I have one last question for you Nancy Rommelman. yes what's the name of this podcast smoke him if you got him you got it babe <laughs>
0: okay bye Sarah Heplo bye everyone bye Nancy Rommelman.
1: and the world may be City.